0: My dearest Sticky Beaks, it's been a long time. Two years since Sarah Demio launched Season 2 of Faded Out, investigating the disappearance of a little girl named Doreen Jane Vincent from her father's rented Connecticut farmhouse. Over one year since I launched Love, Doreen, my first episode on my own journey to find our girl. Countless hours of phone calls, interviews, boring over documents and microfiche and 10 months since July 2020, when the Connecticut Freedom of Information Commission denied my request for Doreen's records and kicked me in the gut. 2020 was a long, dark year. Dark things don't usually scare me. I've always had a morbid fascination with what they call true crime. In my first job out of law school, I clerked for the Massachusetts trial court, where the criminal cases fascinated me. When I couldn't shake, was the 2003 trial of Eric Anderson for the murder of Ruth Masters, all the way back in 1977? Ruth had been riding bikes with her husband and nine year old daughter in a state park when she struck out to explore some trails on her own, only to be attacked, murdered, and mutilated by a man whose identity would remain a mystery for 26 years. I sat in rapt silence for each day of the trial inwardly cheering when Anderson was convicted. It was the sentencing I couldn't handle. Ruth's daughter Pamela, now 35, spoke first, telling the court she had missed her mother on so many important occasions. Her graduations, her wedding day, the birth of her son. For a while, she said she lost faith entirely and directed her hate at God. That's the bad news, Pam said. The good news was that she knew her life was not defined by her loss. I've learned that life is not fair, she attested, but you can still suck the life out of life, and it is wonderful. It's what my mother would want for me, and it's what I want for myself. I still can't explain the shame that struck me as I sat there, as the news crew swung their cameras to the onlookers in the gallery. It hit me full force that I could never understand that family's pain, and that I had been sitting there watching it like it was a movie, like it was entertainment. And I couldn't stop crying. You know the kind of cry I mean. More like a bark with lots of snot. I fled the courtroom, and later, watching the news, my then-boyfriend mocked me for not having the stones to sit through the whole thing. Whatever, I said. I snapped the TV off and I tried not to think about Ruth Masters. But I did. A lot. I worried what my rapt attention at the killer's murder trial said about me. That my obsession with the case was sad and strange. That I'd come every day to stare like a gossip hound. And in the past year or so, I've often worried that maybe that was true about my obsession with Doreen. That it made me a tourist. A woman with twisted taste. Too much time on her hands, and an inability to mind her own business. Coronavirus didn't help, and it certainly didn't help my writing. After weeks spent worrying over my family's health, my children's education, and my own sanity, the effort and emotion it took to steep myself in the details of Doreen's short life, to push to revive her story and claim some justice for her, were sometimes just too much. So I tried in other ways to honor our girl. Last June, I collected money for a memorial I called Flowers for Doreen. Listeners and locals raised $500, and I donated half to RAIN, the Rape Abuse Incest National Network, in Doreen's name. I had the letter sent to her Aunt Debbie. With the other half, I bought a beautiful wreath of flowers in purple, Doreen's favorite color emblazoned with a purple and gold wreath reading, Justice for Dory," On June 15, 2020, the 32nd anniversary of Doreen's reported disappearance, I took that wreath to the gazebo at Wallingford's Johanna Manfreda Fishbein Park, waving with friends and followers to beeping cars and holding signs bearing Doreen's name. When I'd called Lieutenant Michael Colavolpe, the lead detective on Doreen's case, to let him know about the event, He warned that the memorial might coincide with Wallingford's Black Lives Matter protests. I'd cleared it with BLM organizers, I told him. I was more interested in whether he would attend. He couldn't make it, he said. He didn't work that day. Maybe some other officers would come by, he told me. He couldn't promise anything. But remember Lynn from my last episode, Cooking Eggs? She's the girl who was friends with Doreen at Carrington Elementary, when Doreen lived in Waterbury, and the two were in the fourth grade. Lynn had sent me their class photo, featuring a beaming Doreen in a white peasant blouse, with a brown vest and skirt, white ribbons in her long, dark hair. Lynn was the one who'd called me with a story to share, and she showed that day at the gazebo. Before she got there, she texted me, worried, to ask if Doreen's family would be there. After all this time, she was anxious they might recognize her, that it might be uncomfortable. No, I responded, Doreen's family will not be there. After the memorial and a short interview with a writer from the Meriden Wallingford Record Journal, a few of us grabbed takeout at Archie Moore's on North Main Street and headed up to Gouvea Vineyards on Whirlwind Hill Road. We sipped wine at a respectful social distance, not just from each other, but from the rambling farmhouse across the way. We toasted Doreen, traded bits of information, and plotted our next moves. The next day, I delivered the wreath to Aunt Debbie to hand off to Doreen's mother, Donna. We met in the parking lot of a local seafood restaurant, taking off our masks, leaning against our cars into the early summer air, And talking about everything but the case. When we parted ways an hour later, I headed off feeling reinvigorated, confident that it was only a matter of time before the Information Commission granted my records request and handed me the key to the city. By now, I'm sure you know that this didn't happen, and it wrecked me. When I dropped off my demand letter with the police department on June 12, 2019, the day I believed to be the 31st anniversary of Doreen's actual disappearance, the fact that I was a novice who would have to learn the foyer ropes myself didn't faze me. I wasn't just confident in my stance. I was cocky. Doreen's case had been ice cold for years and was never going to heat up unless the public could get their hands on those documents. And by public, I meant me. I had been so mouthy in news articles, going fast and hard against the police, and I had been so sure I would win. I'd named my entire project Sticky Beak because I was proud of my status as a busybody, a shit-stirrer, someone who would die before they took no for an answer. So being publicly served up a giant, unjustified, rubber-stamped no took a big toll. I felt like a tourist. I felt like a joke. So I dove into my job, took solace in my kids, and drank a lot of wine. After a few weeks of feeling really sorry for myself, I texted Aunt Debbie on August 1, 2020. Since I met her in January 2019, Donna's younger sister has been a resource and a guide and a shoulder for me throughout all this. I know how that sounds. Like I, someone dabbling and nosing around someone else's life, somehow needed support. But I do. And Debbie knew it and needed it too. So we became friends. Hey, I wrote, just wanted to say that I missed you. Losing FOIA laid me down, but I'm not down and out. Debbie wrote back almost immediately. Hey, Jess, I miss you too. I've been thinking about you. Wondering if you gave up too. I know it's not going our way. Not sure what to do now. I thought you didn't want to talk anymore, so I haven't been checking in with you, but I certainly have been thinking about you and your family. My eyes misted and my face burned. Oh God, no, I typed back. Not at all. I can understand why you thought that, but absolutely not. No matter what happens, we are friends. Knowing you changed my life, and I'm happy to have you. Debbie's response, meant to be understanding and earnest, just made me feel worse. I feel the same, she wrote, and you may always wonder what happened to her. Just like us. Debbie wasn't the only one worried about me. For months, I've received private and public messages from listeners, including this one from Josh. Made some toast this morning for my kids. They like the butter spread all around to each corner. It made me think of Dory's grandmother. Dory and her grandmother both liked their toast with butter spread over the entire piece. Said a prayer that Dory will find peace. Jessica Fritz Aguirre, how are you hanging in there? The next day, a famous English chef popped up on my phone in an article entitled, Nigella Lawson Butters Her Toast Twice, and Britain is really angry about it
1: when i think of toast the bubble i have above my head is exactly of this well nearly exactly because i favor Uh, the two-stage buttering approach and so far only stage one has taken place and that's to say the minute this came out of the toaster and still lovely and hot I spread it with butter so that the butter has melted down into it and it'll give it a fabulous crumpety bite stage two now ready for it I need a little more butter and it will stay in some golden patches on the surface. It's unsalted butter, which I always prefer to use, but what I need to do is sprinkle some sea salt flakes over. This is the platonic ideal of toast.
0: Some commenters were snarky, Nigella shows the nation how to butter toast. Five minutes I will never get back, one wrote. Others were enraptured, raving, Nigella Lawson is the only person on the planet who can have me hanging on her every word as she tells me how to butter toast. You can tell which camp I fell into, but I wasn't just enraptured. It felt like someone was rapping on my forehead. And the rapping continued. On August 20, 2020, victim impact statements began in the sentencing phase for Joseph D'Angelo, who terrorized California with a vicious series of rapes and murders in the 70s and 80s. I had learned about D'Angelo from another armchair detective who pursued him relentlessly, christening him the Golden State Killer. Michelle McNamara, a true crime blogger and journalist, had been bitten by the bug early, when a girl in her suburban Chicago neighborhood was murdered while out for a jog. After the police cleared the crime scene, Michelle found pieces of the girl's shattered Walkman, and the murder stuck in her mind. Some people wondered about Michelle's so-called obsessions with scary things, evil things, things right-minded people say you should turn your back to. Kathy Lombardo was gone, Michelle wrote on her website True Crime Diary. She wasn't coming back but he, whoever he was, was still out there. The hollow gap of his identity was violently powerful to me. Michelle passed away at age 46 on the precipice of something big. I'll Be Gone in the Dark, her book about the Golden State Killer, was published posthumously. She died in her sleep the month before he was caught from an underlying heart condition coupled with the Adderall, Xanax, and fentanyl that she used to keep herself awake at night, poring over files, and to keep the nightmares at bay when she finally did drop off to sleep. Despite her demons, or maybe because of them, Michelle has been a major inspiration for my search for Doreen. Because she always worked herself to the brink and then over it to see some justice. Some have even called Michelle the Golden State Killer's last victim. And the forehead wrapping didn't stop. Because on the same day the GSK victim impact statements began, a man named Michael Turney was arrested in Mesa, Arizona, for the second-degree murder of his stepdaughter, Alyssa. Alyssa was 17 when she disappeared forever in May 2001, and her story is eerily similar to Doreen's. Michael told the cops she was a runaway, and for a long time, they didn't question his story, meaning they never searched his house or Alyssa's room. Rumors had circulated for years that Michael had stalked and sexually abused Alyssa, but ultimately, no one stepped in. Sarah Turney was 12 when her sister vanished, and her battle to find out what happened to Alyssa has turned her into something of a true crime phenom. I'm shaking and crying. We did it, Sarah posted on social media the day of her father's arrest. Never give up hope that you can get justice. It took almost 20 years, but we did it. These victories for the victims of the Golden State Killer, for Alyssa Turney, they did something to me. In this weird dark year that featured Corona and an unprecedented debilitating political war, it felt like something switched back on in my brain. These people had waited so long, decades, to see an evening of the scales their boogeymen brought to task. Doreen's family had been in the trenches for over three decades as so many doors closed to them, the doors of the police department, the state's attorney's office, the Connecticut Freedom of Information Commission, and even 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road itself. Suddenly, two years of hard work and frustration and dead ends, complete with only one solid kick in the gut, didn't seem so bad. So on September 3rd, 2020, Lynn's message hit me like a thunderbolt. Jessica, it read, I'll send this to you and you can decide whether to post it to the group or not. My stomach dropped as soon as I saw it. And there was an image from a Wallingford Facebook group boasting very few rules. The post read, Barn Sale, Saturday, September 5th, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Early century, mid-century, vintage furniture. Vintage posters, metal signs, and an assortment of art prints. Wagon wheel, children's toys, antique carriages. Assorted vintage collectibles for everyone. 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road, Wallingford, Connecticut. Across from Gouveia Vineyard. My mouth dropped open. My scalp caught fire, and I feverishly read the post to Joe. Okay, he said slowly. Who are you going to send? Of course, he reasoned. It couldn't be me. I was too involved, too easily identified as a spy or a target. I turned my head. I looked at him incredulously. Who else would I send, I asked. After all, I'm a sticky beak. This is Jessica Fritz back to tell you the story of Doreen Jane Vincent. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Recently declared homicide victim and sister, daughter, friend. This is season two, episode one, barn sale. I don't know about you, but I love an estate sale so much more than just a tag sale which calls to mind random bits and bobs strewn across a yard or a driveway. An estate sale means the opening of an entire home, an entire life, to treasure seekers. Sometimes due to a divorce or downsizing, but usually following a death, a person's home is open to the public to showcase everything they've collected through their entire life, up for sale, Someone might hope to snag a good deal on a nice piece of jewelry or furniture, yes, but often people come because they're interested to see how someone lived, to possess a piece of their story, to take a small share. You browse, you examine, you pick something up to inspect it in the light. You squint at something to try to imagine it in your house, in your life. I am personally drawn to silver tea sets and old family photos. I just can't get enough. One time, I was really taken with a silver ring with an opaque blue stone and was wondering about the tiny little cup on the side. My mom wandered up. Oh, a Coke ring, she said nonchalantly. Suddenly understanding what that tiny little cup was for, I set it aside. As gorgeous as the stone was, I wasn't in the market for a Coke ring. Another time I opened up a rusted box to find poker chips inside, embellished with swastikas. I couldn't put that box back fast enough. Now that I think about it, those chips were probably worth something, but I wasn't going to be the woman buying Nazi poker chips. I kept the news of the barn sale relatively quiet, only passing it on to a few trusted women. Some might disagree with me, but I have always been respectful of the house on Whirlwind Hill Road, and I didn't plan to stop now. The day of the sale, the air on top of the hill felt strange, but that was nothing new. Chalk it up to ghosts like the Lady in White, or maybe just the ever-present mist and dizzying view, but it's somehow otherworldly up there. That day, the Saturday before Labor Day, That feeling amplified as my friend Nancy steered us up the steep hill of Center Street toward the last place Doreen had been seen alive. Even now, I still don't know what I thought I was going to find, but in my heart, I think I was hoping for some kind of talisman, if not something that had been Doreen's, maybe something that she had held or coveted or loved, something that perhaps had been silently watching while the mystery of whatever happened to her unfolded. I've never had psychic tendencies, but somehow I felt like whatever I was looking for would call out to me. Doreen's friend Lynn felt the same way, texting me the night before. I have nothing going on, so I'm going to get there right at 8 a.m. I'll see what I can find. I'll get you something if it's there. You know there is, too. My stomach dropped as soon as I saw the post. Let your crew know I'll be there too, so they don't worry if they see someone else going for the 80s stuff. I know this is weird, but I'll know it if I see anything. I'm so torn between excitement over finding something of hers and what it will actually mean. I want to puke. Our hopes that we would somehow find the key to the kingdom were quickly dashed. Despite the promises of a barn sale, We didn't get within 10 feet of any of the barns that remain on the property. Instead, the owner stood sentry over a small cash box in the middle of two long rows of treasures, shielded from the house entirely by a giant screen of trees. We saw old gas station signs, countless art prints housed in beat-up frames, and even a giant box of multiple large, leering Santa Clauses. Nothing sang out to me. And it soon became clear why. Apparently, the wife told the curious, she'd made a hobby of handling others' estates on eBay. And the sale was a clearinghouse for all the pieces she hadn't been able to get rid of. It was a hodgepodge of countless other people's lives. And there was no hope of finding a piece of Doreen or hearing her voice amidst the tables and boxes. Over the years, Doreen's story has become a bit of a barn sale. People from all over have come to look, to inspect, to pick out the pieces of her life that speak to them. In a way, we're all tourists. We identify with her because we liked the shows she did, or because we used to adorn our teased hair with banana clips or listen to George Michael. We know what her favorite color is and that she doted on her little sisters and brother. But she'll never be here to tell us herself what her short life was really like, or how it ended. In trying to reach her, Doraine's family has used not one but two psychics, starting back in the 90s with a woman named Colette. We've played you some of the Colette tapes both here and on Faded Out. Colette saw water, a barn, and the word hunter, which just so happens to be Mark's middle name. Over twenty years later, in October 2016, Doreen's family asked a new woman named Vanessa to reach out. You've heard a bit of Vanessa in a previous episode.
2: She's very happy that you're all together here for this. I hear her laughing hysterically. She's actually a very happy child, so I don't know if she was that happy when all this stuff was going on prior or what led up to this, but um, she's coming across to me very happy, so I just need you all to know that. And um, <laughs> She's cracking herself up, that's all. Yes, yeah, she's not alone. She's with a lot of people over there. She's definitely with several grandparents over there, so it um, looks like a grandma and at least a grandpa over there. She's okay. She said she sings a lot. She's very happy. Um, She's not too thrilled with whatever happened to her, happened to her at that time. But she's in heaven and she's perfectly fine. So she, you know, she doesn't want everybody crying over her. And not that you all still do to this day. But um, yeah, she's appreciating getting a little closure on this, just like you guys are. Now, when it
0: comes to psychics, I'm part believer, but also part skeptic. And I have a lot more I will play for you. For now, I want to get as close as I can to two other girls who knew Doreen in the physical world. So much more so than what I grudgingly bought at the 1316 barn sale, a sterling silver spoon, and a tiny portrait of flowery weeds tangled outside a window. It has always struck me that speaking to girls who existed alongside Doreen in that late 80s weird universe of being a preteen girl might yield a better clue. The insight provided by Kate, who quickly became Doreen's friend for the short time the two spent together at Westwood's Christian Academy, has been immense. But I was also drawn to another student at the school, a senior to Doreen and Kate's 7th graders. Heather Parker's family attended church with Mark and Doreen's stepmother, Sharon, which wasn't unusual as many of the Westwood's families worshipped together. What was weird was the way Heather kept popping up in the pieces I've managed to call from the police file. Her name seemed to be on everyone's lips, from the police to private investigator Richard Novia to Mark himself. In the record I have, Heather first came to the Wallingford PD's attention on June 28, 1988, ten days after Donna discovered Doreen was missing and forced Mark to report it. That day, A man named Jerry Damon called the cops to say he'd seen Doreen's photo in the paper and was sure he'd seen her at about 10 the night before when he claimed he'd left his house to go grocery shopping. As he drove by the East Center Street Sunoco station, Damon reported, he'd seen a distressed-looking girl sitting on the curb by its payphone. He was worried, he said. He turned his truck around to speak to the girl to ask if he could call someone for her. When she rejected his offer, he asked again, and she snapped at him, so he left. Loyal listeners will remember that the exact words the girl used were fuck off. Heather would pique the department's interest again just a few days later, on July 1st, 1988, when one officer jotted off a memo to another. You've heard this one before, too. Friday, while we were on the bank watch, it reads, a kid David Borelli stopped in at Police HQ and told Yautcher that he works for Fizzino Auto Parts, the same place that Heather works. Heather is a girlfriend of the missing 12-year-old Doreen Vincent. Borelli told Yautcher something to the effect that he saw Heather delivering stuff to Chote Friday around 11 p.m. And in the truck, he believes he saw Doreen, our runaway, riding all scruffy and unkempt. However, Youcher messed up parts of this thing, and now I cannot be positive what Borelli said to Youcher. Also, I want to show him the color photo to be sure. Borelli wants to be kept out of the whole thing, which I can do, but I need confirmation on what exactly he did or did not see Friday. He will call sometime Saturday. Could you please meet him and get the story right and have him look at the attached photo? I dug through the file to find a follow-up report, undated, this one from the illustrious Officer Youcher. On Friday, July 1st, 1988, he wrote, an anonymous report was received that a girl fitting Doreen's description was seen in a Fasino delivery truck with Heather Parker, delivering parts at the Tote School garage. Heather Parker was re-interviewed. She again said she had not seen Doreen since school and had not had any contact with her. Before we unpack all of this, let's talk for a minute about our tipster, David Borelli. Like Heather, Borelli was 17 when he reported a girl resembling Doreen who looked like she had not washed her hair in a month. At the time, he wished to remain anonymous, but in 2019, finding Borelli's name in a pile of what the PD determined to be dead leads, he wasn't anonymous to me. So I looked him up. In October 2011, David Borelli was arrested for the murder of his fiancée, Francesca Piscatelli, in Hamden, Connecticut. Both were 41. He'd been living with Francesca, her two kids, and her former mother-in-law, and he couldn't keep a job. He'd given it a shot with a couple tow truck companies, a family member said, but they kept firing him. He wouldn't move out, the witness told the New Haven Register. He sold his vehicle. He did not work. He wanted her to support him. The day after Francesca's son's 13th birthday, Borelli stabbed her in the stomach in the middle of the night, and she was on the phone with 911 when he slit her throat. When the police arrived, Borelli was bleeding from cuts to his own wrists, but he survived and is currently serving 37 years in a Connecticut prison. At his arraignment, the bail commissioner noted Borelli had, quote, a number of prior domestic violence arrests, but no convictions. In fact, Borelli had no criminal record at all. When I told Heather that Borelli, her Fazino's coworker, had given her name to the police, she was surprised. He'd been so shy, she said, and she'd been nothing but nice to him. In Doreen's story, David Borelli is nothing but a footnote, a distraction, a blip on the radar. But like so many things connected to Doreen's case, he also represents another dark rabbit hole, one of violence against women and a broken justice system. But back to Heather. When she's first mentioned in the police file in that July 1st, 1988 entry, it says Heather has been re-interviewed. I can't find a record of that first interview or any others anywhere. A few confidential witnesses are scattered among the logs of interviews, but the dates don't match up. And then Heather just disappears from the file. To them, she's the distraction, the radar blip. Just a surly teenage girl loitering down by the gas station. But to Mark Vincent, and to Richard Novia, she was a lot more. The first time Heather's name pops up in Novia's record was July 10th, 1988 nine days after David Burley spun his tale of the truck parts and the girl with the unwashed hair. And from what I can see, Novia didn't learn her name from the police. That day, Novia and his partner, a man named Hoffman, journeyed to the Whirlwind Hill property to check the house and scattered barns. This visit was unannounced, Novia wrote. We were accompanied by Mr. Vincent. Mr. Vincent remained calm and had a welcoming all-in conversation. Mr. Vincent claimed he contacted Heather Parker's brother, Mike, and asked for Heather. This person told him Heather was not there. Vincent then asked him when she would be back, and Mike said he didn't know, in an invasive way. Mr. Vincent further stated that when he went to this address to see if Doreen was there, they would not let him in. Mr. Vincent feels like this is where she is hidden. So Novia set off again, noting... Steps were taken to locate Heather Parker, said to be a friend of Doreen's. And here it appears Novia got the name, not from Mark, but from Doreen's mother, Donna. Donna felt Doreen was with her, or knew where Doreen would be, he wrote. Novia checked with the Wallingford police, but they were no help. They admitted they had spoken to Heather, but had no clue where to find her. No matter what, Heather was, of course, a plausible lead, a friend of Doreen's from the same school and the same church. But when he found Heather on July 10th, Novia learned she wasn't attending Westwoods anymore, and she wasn't living at home. Instead, she'd been living on the streets of Wallingford, only recently finding shelter on South Main Street with another teenager named Jennifer, and Jennifer's mother and sister. Heather remembered Doreen, but not well. Not only were they not friends, Heather said, but she barely knew the girl, never spending any time with her at Westwoods or anywhere else. Despite this, Heather told Novia, she would 100% know if Doreen was on the streets in the area. And there was one thing about Doreen that stood out, Heather said. She was known to make up stories. And Doreen wasn't the only one. To clarify things with Jerry Damon, he of the 10 p.m. grocery shopping and the sighting at the Sunoco phone booth. Novia put Heather in his car and took her to Damon's house. Face to face with Heather, Damon admitted she was the one he had seen, and remarked that Heather looked nothing like the missing 12-year-old. She was shorter and smaller than the description of Doreen, Damon said, and the hair didn't match. Doreen's was longer and straighter, while Heather had just had a haircut and a perm. Heather remembered Damon, too, from the gas station. She'd been smoking pot that night, Heather told Novia, and Damon had tried to come on to her and pick her up. She definitely remembered telling him to fuck off. But Heather wasn't done, because there was one more person who wasn't telling the truth. Remember Heather's brother Mike? The one from whose Knollwood Drive house Mark had tried to rescue his daughter, only to be turned away? She knew a Parker at that address, Heather told Novia, but it wasn't a member of her family, just someone with the same last name. And as for her brother, Heather put a blunt point on it. Brother Mike didn't exist. Years later, in 2020, I told Donna and Debbie about the non-existent Mike Parker. In the days after Doreen had gone missing, they told me they'd camped out night after night at a house in Wallingford where they believed Doreen's friend lived. They couldn't remember whether the house was on South Elm or Knollwood, and now too much time had passed for them to recognize a photo. These days, Debbie can't recall who told them where the house was, but doesn't think it was Mark. Novia's response was a bit more direct. Mr. Vincent, he wrote simply, is caught lying repeatedly. And that's where, or almost where, Novia's Notes on Heather Parker End. In his report, just like in the Wallingford PDs, Heather is a bit of a non-entity, someone to sniff around and then abandon for a better lead. If Novia ever confronted Mark about his blatant lies, it's not in the unredacted report I have. But neither Novia nor the police show any indication they concern themselves with why Heather was living on the streets or why she felt so confident in recognizing any other young girls doing so. In 2020, Heather's name got stuck in my brain, so I set out to find the woman herself. When I finally did, about a year ago, it took her a while to get back to me, but when she did, her emotions were raging. I am just getting your message now, and this still saddens my heart, Heather wrote. I don't know who you are, but I would be happy to speak to you but I don't have anything to offer. I didn't really know her as a person. I only know what the private investigators told me and how they treated me. When I opened your message, which I never do from anyone I don't know, I don't know why I did open it. But last week, I was praying for Doreen. So I'm guessing the powers that be want us to speak. You can ask me anything and everything you want. I would love to have her case solved. I don't know how you found me or if I can even help, but you did, so there must be something that I have to offer. Wouldn't it be something if you found me and then you and I found the answers? Doreen would be dancing that two strangers got her family peace and justice. I had been warned on January 5th that big past hurts were going to come up soon and give me long-needed closure. And here it is. I've been preparing for this. I just didn't know which hurt would be brought up. This one connects several. I am ready to face them all and help you and her family any way I can. When it came to specifics, our conversations at first were slow, halting, most of them conducted by text. Heather's first memory of the Doreen Vincent investigation was being hauled into the police station and being told she'd use the same gas station payphone as someone resembling Doreen. That was a scary gas station, Heather said. So dark. I prodded a bit and asked her if she remembered Jerry Damon, or that a man had tried to pick her up. She didn't, but told me that wasn't unusual. As a girl living on the street, she said, it happened to her at least once a day, if not three or four times. As for Doreen, Heather was adamant she hadn't known her, but had only seen her in Jim, which all the Westwoods girls took together. I can remember playing volleyball in gym class with her smile and laughter, Heather wrote. But that's it. I don't remember talking to her or seeing her in the halls. I was in a bad place. Not a dark place, but a hurt place then. All I wanted to do was make the grades and make people smile. I have scars from that part of my life, she wrote, but I never did anything wrong. That investigation hurt me emotionally. I was just a child myself with no place to live. Going as gingerly as I could, I asked Heather why she had run away. I didn't, she responded. I had a hard family life. Too much religion shoved down my throat. Don't get me started with that religion. I shared a lot more with Doreen than I ever knew. My parents were brainwashed. It was their religion or get out. So my mother threw me out. I had a harder road. I worked three jobs and slept under porches, on park benches, until I had enough money to get an apartment. Heather's mother called Westwoods and told them that her daughter didn't live at home anymore, so the school kicked her out too, and she didn't graduate. That was the winter before Doreen disappeared. It was cold, Heather remembered, and she walked the streets to keep herself warm. That was how she met Jennifer, who brought Heather to her house on South Elm to shower and introduce her to her mom, Geraldine. Heather said Geraldine was skeptical of her at first, but was kind enough to let her stay, with Heather insisting on paying a little something weekly. I asked Heather about the investigators who'd quizzed her back in 1988. She remembered Detective Peter Cameron, she wrote, because she and Jennifer called him Inspector Gadget behind his back. I honestly cannot wait to read the reports you have, she typed. I'm certain there are some missing. Do you have one with me in an interview room? I think they had me in one like three times if memory serves me right. When I told Heather I had no record of the interviews themselves, she wasn't surprised. She'd been a kid, she said, and she's right. At 17, she was a minor. No adult was ever called to be with her, she told me, and anything in the investigators' reports were lies they had put in her mouth. They were not forthcoming with me, she wrote. In my heart, I believe they had no idea what the hell they were doing. But who was I? Just a kid. I only know what the police and Rick told me. I was 17, and my life was upside down. But how had she popped up on the cops' radar, I asked. Heather's memory was fuzzy. At first, she said she'd always thought that the police picked on her because they thought she was just a runaway, like they considered Doreen. She was angry at Dave Borelli, accusing him of lies. I asked about her being mistaken for Doreen. Yes, she recalled, Doreen and I did look alike. That's how they found me. They saw me walking into a pizza place and jumped out of their car, scared the crap out of me in front of my friends. He and his partner bought our pizza. I assumed she was talking about Detective Cameron, a.k.a. Inspector Gadget, and pushed her a little on the details, like which pizza place it had been. Maybe Colony, she thought, on the corner of Center Street and the one-way. She'd been with Jennifer when the detective pulled up flashing Doreen's photo. That investigator was an asshole, Heather said. The one that took me person to person. Wait, do you mean Rick Novia, I asked. I quickly sent her a recent photo of Novia and asked if they were one and the same. It absolutely is, she typed back. Same scar on his right eyebrow. Same scar on left side of his forehead and same ears and eyes. Look at you go, Detective Jessica. Jesus, well, he didn't age well. I thought he was hot back then. I would never recognize this man. There was one thing she remembered, though, and that was Doreen's diary. Or, to be more specific, what Mark told Novia told Heather about Doreen's diary. Until then, all I had on that long-lost book was a big redacted hole in Novia's report, so I was eager to hear any new details, even if they came in the form of a decades-old game of telephone. I sat up straight and listened. Doreen had used the diary, Heather told me, to rate all the girls at Westwoods on a scale of 1 to 10, and Heather was the only 10. Said she wrote that she wanted to look and be just like me, Heather told me. Imagine how that played on my heartstrings. I'm an empath. I only want to help people heal. I don't know if that was true or if those were lies. But to me, hearing that and being a teenager, I knew that everyone always looked up to someone. Idolized someone. Music, people, whatever. Always wanting to be someone better than they are. So that grabbed my heart and made me want to help her. They played me more than I thought. But there was something more troubling in what Heather told me, and it wasn't about Doreen. It was about Novia. He sweet-talked to me like no other man in my life, Heather said. What? I wrote. Sweet-talked you? That doesn't make any sense. He billed the family like $16,000 in today's money, I told Heather, and found nothing. That's because he was too busy taking me to his office to hang out and to party, she wrote. He bought alcohol for the people that I hung out with. I didn't drink or do drugs, but my friends did. The people in parties were Jennifer's friends. I don't remember if they spoke after the pizza place. He would just come to parties and sit quietly, and I sat on his lap. Her friends got mad at me and said, he's a cop. He just observed. They didn't make him feel welcome. Jennifer was a huge drinker and drug user, Heather said, who went nuts when Heather brought her concerns to Jennifer's mother, Geraldine. Heather couldn't take it, so she left. She might not have had Jennifer anymore, but she did have Rick Novia. And Novia's adventures with Heather didn't end with parties. We went on all-night stakeouts, night after night, Heather texted me. They would park by the reservoir, Heather remembered, and spy on 1316 Whirlwind Hill where the basement light stayed on all night. We would lie down in the back of a station wagon, and he would hold me for hours. I was hurting then. He had something like a, I wish I could remember, but we were lying down in what I think was something like a station wagon. I don't know. I can't think right now. We were laying down in the back of a long vehicle, and the back was open to the Pogs pond. He was stroking my hair and making me feel wanted and comfortable. He actually acted as if he wanted to be my boyfriend. I was 17 and dumb. I wanted to be a cop after that. I grabbed my binder like a madwoman and went rifling through it, and there it was. A note so small, I had missed it. 11 p.m., July 25, 1988, Novia wrote. Arrived in Wallingford, went by Heather Parker's address. The report skips a couple of lines and then reads, 11.15 p.m. went to the Vincent's house. What Novia failed to record was who went with him. Reading this, I was struck dumb. Oh my fucking God, he used his job to take advantage of kids, I wrote. Heather responded right away. Hindsight. No, now I do not believe that. Now I believe he was being a good man and consoling me during a very difficult time. Meanwhile, trying to see if I knew anything. But still, he kissed me and played with my hair, but nothing ever more than that. I was a prude, but I honestly do not remember him ever trying anything beyond gentle affection. I feel for him, and honestly, he never made a move to have any sexual relations. After that, Heather and Rick Novia lost touch. She went looking for him afterward, at the trailer she told me he lived and worked, but he was gone. And all these years later, Heather is still angry. I want in the worst way to have a conversation with Rick, she texted me. I was young and looking back on it now, I know Rick was in the wrong. I honestly thought at the time he was looking for Doreen and that I was helping him. Being an adult and looking back, that might not have been his total truth. And after what I read about Adam Lanza, he could have done the same thing to Adam that he did with me, became so friendly and then just abandoned him. I am so sick over this. I was angry with Rick for abandoning me. Rick is human, a guy, but he crushed me by abandoning me. Having said that, that could be on me. I was pissed back when he disappeared. He was so wrong. So wrong on so many levels. I need to go to bed. I cannot think anymore. I want to see him face to face and confront him. I would spit in his face and then some. Rick... Be in his face and pick his brain and ask him what the fuck he was thinking. I have realized tonight that I have timeline discrepancies, maybe from suppression. I am beside myself. Did the fact that Rick found me impede the investigation? Heather is not the only one left with loaded questions and haunted dreams, living her life in the shadow of Doreen's. When she squints her eyes and examines things in the light, it's not Doreen's life she remembers. It's her own, one lead in parallel, packed with religion and abuse and growing up before her time. The role she plays in Doreen's story is more than a footnote, a distraction, a blip on the radar. It's not a cardboard box stuffed with someone else's silver tea sets and eBay Santas. And the same is true for Lynn, who shared a fourth-grade classroom with Doreen, who clued me in about the Labor Day barn sale on Whirlwind Hill Road, who went looking for anything and everything she could possibly tie to her old friend, even though the feeling made her want to vomit. Lynn called me about a year ago, right as corona hit. As we spoke, she was handing out masks and interrupted our conversation to hand one to a neighbor. A good person, a smart person, I thought. Her cousin had been in her ear for months, she told me, Begging her to listen to a podcast called Sticky Beak about a missing local girl. It wasn't until her cousin mentioned Doreen's name that Lynn snapped to attention. Lynn remembered Doreen from Carrington, but when Doreen left in the mid 80s, staying in touch was about as likely as moonwalking with Michael Jackson. Years later, Lynn had attended college, but it wasn't for her, so she went into the military. She came back as lost as before moved back into her parents' house, and took a long, hard look around. She was lonely, so she decided to look up old friends in a new marvel of the modern world called Google. The word Doreen remained in her brain, but the last name was lost to time. Waterbury, she decided. I'll Google Doreen and Waterbury. The result was exactly what you would expect. Her friend had been missing for years and she hadn't even known. Lynn remembered, back when the girls were nine, that their mothers had shared coffee over a dining room table. That was when Doreen lived in Waterbury's Bunker Arms Apartments with her sister Stephanie and Donna, and her aunts Carol and Debbie right down the hall. Lynn couldn't recall where the coffee clatch took place, but the sleepover was definitely at Lynn's house, because she remembered her own poo nightstand and strawberry shortcake curtains. I want to try something, Doreen said. Let me do something for you. They were nine. And that was when Doreen pulled Lynn's underwear down and performed oral sex on her friend. I remember her head between my legs, Lynn told me, but not any feeling that she or I or we were doing anything wrong. And to this day, I've never felt like she was taking advantage of me abusing me. We were just kids. I have more to share from Lynn, but I'll pause there for now. As I tell Doreen's story, and as you listen to it, we always run the risk of feeling like we're crashing into someone's home, someone's world, like we're tourists who stop to gawk and gape. But while her story isn't ours, we take Doreen home with us, think about her when we go to sleep, Cry about her in our car. What happens to her reminds us of our own past and shapes our future. Tourists visit a place and then move on. But there's no moving on from Doreen Vincent. I was recently struck when I put the finishing touches on this episode with the long-awaited arrest of Paul Flores in the 1996 vanishing of college freshman Kristen Smart. Interest in Kristen's long, cold case was reinvigorated by a podcast hosted and produced by Chris Lambert, called Your Own Backyard. Chris was just eight when Kristen disappeared from California Polytechnic Institute, but he grew up fascinated by her disappearance and intent on doing something about it. In the wake of the arrest of Paul, as well as his father, Ruben, for accessory to murder, Chris took to Instagram. For most of my life, he wrote, Kristen Smart has been a face on a billboard. I've learned about Kristen the daughter, Kristen the big sister, Kristen the friend, the neighbor, the roommate, Kristen the swimmer, Kristen the dreamer, and I've learned that you can miss a person you never even got to meet.